0: Amen. You may be seated. At this time, the sprouts can be dismissed. Children, uh, kindergarten and younger, uh, can go with our sprout workers. And let's uh, give our sprout workers a round of applause as they continue to serve our children so faithfully. Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible... And you need one. Um, there will be some uh, some of our guys. Uh, you could just slip your hand up as you see them come with a couple of Bibles, and uh, we will provide you one. If you don't own a Bible, we also have some Bibles uh, for giveaway in the back. Just see one of the ushers after the service, and we have um, we have a Bible for you. Um, and as you turn there, page nine sixty one in the Black Bible, chapter fifteen of First Corinthians. We're going to read the first 34 verses as we begin. I would like to ask that you guys listen, read along if that helps. Take this in and ask God to speak to us through His Word this morning. At, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was But in, Christ, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then the end comes. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be just destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subject, uh, subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subject, subjection under him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with B at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, and let us drink, for tomorrow we may die. No, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to the passage, uh, First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 34. This is a powerful passage as it discusses the resurrection of Christ and our hope therein. Yet God, with our own human ears and our own understanding, we really cannot even fathom these mysteries. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit move through our hearts, convict us of sin where there's uh, a sense of cloudiness in our brains because of, because of uh, the discouragement that we are walking through, the despair, the sin struggles. God, we ask that you, that you remove the clouds for a moment so that we might see clearly the truth that is in the, these words, so that we might see Jesus, so that Jesus might be lifted up in our midst for his glory. And it's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Does life really matter? I mean, does life really matter? We all live our lives in various ways. We work jobs, we get married, give birth, stay single, we pay bills, we pay more bills, then we get some more bills. We raise kids, we raise other people's kids, we lose friends, we go to weddings, we attend funerals, we have sex, we eat food, we drink, we laugh, we cry, we have grandkids, our bodies begin to break down, we find ourselves in the hospital. And then we die. Did any of that matter? Some, seeking to live a life that matters, try to do a lot of good. But in the end, does any of it really matter? Or are we just merely bags of chemicals existing in this life? only to be damned in the next. There's a problem in the world today that's affecting millions. And it's not physical. It's not sickness. It's not epidemics of disease. It's not global issues such as hunger or the water crisis. Though those are indeed real threats. But the greatest threat that faces humanity today are millions, billions of people living lives that just do not matter in the end. Looking for hope. Trying to find hope in the next thing, the next event. Looking forward to the next meal, maybe, or looking forward to the weekend. Looking forward to the next vacation. Life just becomes a series of whatever's next to numb us, to get us through until the end. One comedian spoke some profound words in an ironic way on this passage. He didn't know that he was talking about 1 Corinthians 15. But he talked about this little feeling that we all have, which says that this is it. This world is it. This life is it. And we're really alone in this world, aren't we? And he says, this is why people are addicted to their cell phones. This little feeling starts to bubble up. You're sitting in traffic. And what do you do? You text 50 people. Because we have to somehow suppress the feeling. We can't remind ourselves how miserable and how pointless and how meaningless life actually is. Or maybe it's not your cell phone that you're addicted to, but you turn up the music. Or maybe you go to, to the next meal and you eat a lot of food. Or maybe you watch sports. Or maybe you do a few shots. Anything to numb the pain. Anything to suppress that feeling that in the end, this life doesn't really matter. Now friends, this life does matter. The Bible says that this life matters. And in this passage of 1 Corinthians 15, we see the key as to why this life matters, how we know that this life matters, and what makes this life matter. That key, I'm going to give it to you right now, There's no mystery about it. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus makes this life matter. We look around and we see the the, the white buds on the trees and the pink buds on those trees and the green buds on others and spring has sprung, right? I had some tulips in my backyard until somebody just chopped them off. Spring has sprung, and it is this reminder that on a tree that looked dead just maybe a month ago, all of a sudden life, there's life. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is new life coming to what was dead, and it says this life really matters. Now, this deserves two very important questions. The first question is this, how is it possible that the resurrection of a man about 2,000 years ago, roughly, really makes my life matter today? I mean, even if it happened, okay, even if Jesus really died and really rose from the dead if it really happened at most wouldn't it ju- just simply be a remarkable event of history yeah. like wow that's that's just that's just amazing i mean he was dead and he rose from the dead like but it, i mean it's amazing we can talk about it you know maybe we could put a Easter celebration together and like, hey, remember the guy that rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Let's talk about what that, you know, the idea of resurrection or whatever. How does the resurrection of one person, even if it happened, change our life today? How does it bring meaning into our life today? Well, the answer is found, it's summed up in the reason why Jesus died. And this is exactly the first place that Paul goes in this chapter as he begins to discuss the resurrection. He says, I want to remind you, I want to preach to you that which I first gave to you. And if you hold firmly to this until the end, he says, then you will be saved. And what is this? Well, look at verse 3. He says, I delivered to you that which is a first.'" Importance. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're exploring the faith, good news. This verse tells you what the most important thing in the entire Bible is. This verse sums up what the good news of Jesus is and why we love Jesus. He says, I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received. Look at it. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So the reason Jesus died was to be the bearer of guilt for the sin of God's people. God, as we prayed earlier, is a holy God. And He is a just God. And we have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. And Jesus came, God in the flesh, as that perfect lamb without one blemish who went to the cross and the reason he died was so that your sins may be placed onto him so that he might take the guilt of your sins and bear the punishment for your sins and he absorbed every bit of it so the reason now that the resurrection of Jesus matters is because he died for our sins Second question, though, even if that's true, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Like, how do, we, how do we know? The Bible says it, but how do we know the Bible's true, Tony? I mean, I appreciate the faith. You know, some, some believers I've heard say things like, well, you know, when I'm talking to a, an unbeliever, I just tell them, you just got to believe. Like, I don't have any evidence for you. I don't know why I believe. I just do. I just, you just got to believe. You know, like the Easter bunny, for example. You just got to just gotta have faith. Well, why is it that these arguments that come out today saying, well, belief in Jesus Christ is synonymous with belief in the Easter bunny? If you believe in Jesus, you might as well believe in Santa Claus. And why is it that people buy these, buy these arguments? Well, it's because, unfortunately, we largely have a, have a, have a faith that is, isn't grounded. As if our faith is just this, this blind leap into the abyss, and maybe, maybe Jesus will be there to catch us. And I think He will, and so should you. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Look at verse 4, verses 4 through 8. He died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me. Friends, the assurance that the early Christians had in their faith wasn't because the tomb was empty. The empty tomb scared them. The empty tomb confused them. What gave the early Christians... In the face of just remarkable persecution, confidence that what they believed was true was in the eyewitness testimonies of those who saw the risen Jesus. Imagine you're sitting, or imagine you're reading a history of a certain battle that took place. And the history was written by a man who was sitting on a hill watching the battle take place. And he wrote, this is what I experienced. This is what I saw. And then maybe he said, and there were 30 others that were also there with me. This is the way history has been recorded. This is the way ancient history was written. Eyewitness testimonies, and then others who also were there that could verify, yes, this actually took place. What we see here is a real letter to real people in Corinth, written about around AD 55 about 20 some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus it's a real historic document that is written in the way ancient history is written eyewitnesses look look what he says he says first he appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to the 12 and then he appeared to 500 most of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? Well, it's intended to be this, this sense of proof. So you can, you can get on your phone and you can call these people, most of them are still alive, and you can ask them, is this true? Like we have this document that says this happened. Is this, is this true? Did you really see the risen Jesus? And there is no record of one of these 500, nor any of the, the, the apostles denying that the resurrection happened. And friends, they weren't living a nice Western life. No, the apostles. Well, Peter, let's start with Peter, crucified upside down. Never once said, wait a second. Let me tell you the truth. I'll renounce it. It's not worth This death. The apostles, all of them, killed, crucified, impaled, beheaded, whipped to death, beaten to death. And not one of them renounced their testimony of the resurrection. The 500 that are are mentioned here, most of whom are still alive, many of them probably lost their life within a few years under the reign of Nero. Uh, hot tar poured on their body until they died. Lit as torches for Nero's dinner parties. And there is no shred of historical evidence which says that any one of these individuals said, wait a second. Before you pour hot tar on my body, let me renounce what I have been holding fast to. Because Paul And Peter and the apostles and the 500 would rather die than they would lie. Because they found a hope that was far beyond this life. It's been said, and you've maybe heard it said, that there's more historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is the fact that Julius Caesar ever lived. Well, what does that mean? I'll give you an example of why people say that. Um, historians accept the, the Gaelic Wars to have been a, a historical event, Wars of Julius Caesar. How do we know that the Gaelic Wars happened? Well, there are, there are about 10 manuscripts that talk about these particular wars. And they, the earliest was written 1,300 years after the fact. Now, let's compare that with the evidence of the biblical manuscripts. We have 5,700 fragments of biblical manuscripts, all of which written by eyewitnesses, the earliest within 100 years. What it means is this. The statement there there is more historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than the fact that Caesar ever lived is a true statement. We're not doubting the Gaelic Wars. We're not doubting history. What we're saying is is the resurrection is a historical fact. Meaning we don't have a faith that is just a blind leap. We don't just simply hope that these things are true and, and trust in like this, the story or the idea of a resurrection. and No. We have a faith that has roots. The next question that we must ask, though, is why then do so many people doubt the resurrection? If it is such a historically... Rooted truth, why do so many doubt the resurrection? To accept the wars of, say, Caesar, demands absolutely nothing of your life. However, to accept the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands everything of your life. To say that Jesus rose from the dead means that we have to listen to what He said about us. It means then that He did in fact die for our sins. That means then that we are sinners. That means then that I can no longer be Lord of my own life, but now I have to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and receive Him as Lord of my life. And so therefore, it changes everything about our lives. So we can look at all of the evidence we want. We could argue until we're red right in the face with historians. But in, as long as we are not willing to receive Christ as Lord of our life, we cannot receive the resurrection. It's viable history. Now, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, and not only do we have a, a faith that is reasonable, not only can we believe that he rose from the dead, but friends, listen, we must believe that he rose from the de- de- dead. Excuse me. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, not only is, there a def- is it defensible, it's also absolutely necessary. Let me show you what, 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 what he says here. There's a number here of, of if then statements. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Then, there's a number of if-then statements. Let's look at them. First, he says in verse 14, he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Meaning, I would be much better off at home right now. Why did I spend hours this week studying and putting this sermon together? Why do I do this every darn week if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Friends, those of you who have trouble getting up in the morning, coming to these gatherings, know this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would be the first to sleep in. I would be at home, eating wings, watching TV. Or preaching. It would just be in vain. It would be pointless. He goes on. He says that your faith is in vain if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And not only is your faith in vain... But he says in verse 15, he says that you are misrepresenting God if Jesus did not, in fact, rise from the dead. I was speaking with a few Jehovah's Witnesses who so lovingly came to my door. And I had a thought, and I shared it with them. I said, I said, if you don't believe that Jesus is, in fact, God and risen from the dead as Lord of all, then then you're misrepresenting God. And the man that I was talking to turned it on me. And he said, well, that's true. But if Jesus is not God, and you're claiming that He is God, don't you see that you're misrepresenting God? He was right. That's what Paul's saying. If Jesus did not triumph over death, then we in fact are heretics. We are misrepresenting the work of God and God would not be happy with us. He goes on, he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you are still in your sins in verse 17. What does that mean? I mean, if Jesus died on the cross for my sins, isn't that taken care of? Why does he have to rise from the dead? What does it mean that I'm still in my sins if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Look at verses 55 and 56 with me. Same chapter. Death, it says, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. What is that saying? It's saying this. the The sting of sin is death. So, the fact then that we can look back in history and we can see person after person, individuals who were remarkable people, they've all died, all right? And they stayed dead. Paul is saying the fact that they stayed dead is proof that they were sinners. Because the sting of death, or the sting of sin, is death. Well,. The Scriptures claim that Jesus Jesus was the sinless Lamb offered as our sacrifice. Friends, if Jesus stayed dead, if He didn't bodily get up from the ground, it would show us two things. One, it would show us that Jesus was still today under the power of death. Which would mean then that Jesus was not in fact our sinless Savior. He is not in fact our Lord. His death meant absolutely nothing for us. He is still under the power of death. And friends, if Jesus then is still under the power of death, then we are still under the power of sin. and We have no hope. Well, that's what he says next. In verse 18, he says, those, if, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the dead then those who have died... Are, are, are perished. Like, they're dead. That word perished, it's a, it's a very hard and graphic word. It means just destroyed. You're, 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 you're dead dead. Can we say that? Meaning all of those who have gone before us, are, they, they have perished. Meaning we have no hope and we will just merely perish after this life. We're just a bag of chemicals. We have no hope beyond the good things and the, the food that we can eat and the drink that we can have today. The dead are, have perished, he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And lastly, he says in verse 19 that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are the most pitied of all You know, there's nothing more pitiful than a child who's expecting to receive a gift and the gift doesn't come. I remember when I was uh, younger, Christmas time, there was a big box uh, after all the presents had been opened. And uh, the box I knew was for me. All right, I had the big last gift. And somebody told my little brother who was probably about six that it's for him. And this little kid, I mean, like flowers were popping out of his eyeballs. Spring had sprung. And I, I still remember to this day the heartbreak that was in his face when, when my dad pushed the box toward my direction. And he realized there's nothing, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, isn't it? There's nothing more pitiful than a child who's told that his father is coming home and dad never comes home. He's saying, friends, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then we are to be most pitied. We have no hope. All of this hope that we thought we had, everything that we thought we were looking forward to is just going to be smashed one day. And we ought to mourn for ourselves. His big point here is he's saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Later on he says, so. we, we might as well just eat and drink. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What what does that mean? The first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. A little agricultural history would help us. Imagine there's a farmer who has... A, 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 a harvest that's beginning to, to, uh, to come to fruition. And he goes out. And let's just pretend it's strawberries. And he gra- gra- gathers the first fruits of this harvest. The first little strawberries that have formed. He gathers them into a basket and he brings them in and he places them on their farm table there. And they sit down and they, they taste the first fruits. The quality of the first fruits will determine the quality of the rest of the harvest. Depending on how sweet and marvelous the strawberries taste as they first come in off the field will determine whether or not the remaining harvest is sweet and marvelous. So Jesus here is described then as a first fruit. So He rose from the dead. What is then our hope in the resurrection? He's described as the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. Now look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. We see this, this parallel now between Adam and Christ. Why is this? Well, it's because Adam was a very bad kind of first fruit. Adam, your, your father Adam, who, 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 who fell away from God, who rebelled against God, who said, no, I, I don't trust your direction. I don't trust your lordship. Who decided to go his own way. Adam shows us that we are indeed sinners. The first fruits of humanity show us that we have rebel hearts that will always turn against God. If we were given a thousand opportunities to choose God, we would choose against God every single time. As in Adam, he says, then all die. So Adam shows that humanity is sinful and is a very bad kind of harvest. Yet life, though, he says, comes through another man. And that man is Jesus Christ. So also, he says, in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, who is that all referring to? Well, it could be referring to those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and talking here about the the resurrection then of the righteous. It's possible, however, that that means all, period. All humans, period. Friends, listen. The resurrection is true for everyone. All will be raised. However, the resurrection then is not good news for everyone. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus there is described as the one who has been risen from the dead to be the, ju- the judge. So God rose Christ from the dead, so that He might be the judge, there it says, of the living and the dead. So there is this picture then that all will be raised and Christ stands as the judge. How you have received Christ now will determine how He receives you then. And so Christ stands as the judge, and all people are divided into two, into two camps. The living and the dead. Look what it says in verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under his feet. Look at the language there. His enemies. The opposition. All who have opposed Christ now will be opposed then. Now is this referring here to spiritual enemies? Demonic powers? Or is this referring to human enemies? the answer is it's referring to both it's referring to all who have opposed christ now in revelation chapter 20 it vividly describes the end as all who have opposed christ are thrown into the lake of fire demonic oppression satan The unrepentant sinners, rapists, extortioners, adulterers, self-righteous, murderers, human governments that are unjust. And if you are breathing a sigh of relief because I didn't mention you, remember that Jesus says those who have lusted in their hearts have committed adultery. Those who have hated their brother have murdered You see, we are commanded, this isn't an option, we are commanded to believe the gospel. We are commanded to repent of our sins and turn and find Christ a glorious Savior. And if we disobey that one command, there is no hope. For all who have Opposed Christ. For all who have denied Christ, Christ will deny in the end. Until all of His enemies are under His feet. Verse 26, where is our hope? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. O oh, death, where is your sting? What power do you, O oh, death, have over the redeemed? What power do you have over Christ? So here the end comes. It says all opposition is finally put under his feet. Look what else it says, He then delivers the kingdom to the Father. Here's the picture that we that we have. Let me let me actually just read these, let me read these verses to you. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and authority, he must, he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in, in subjection under his feet. But when, all things, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son of Man will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Amen. What is that saying? Let me, let me try to paint the picture for you. Christ is the first fruits of the harvest. We see Christ... And we know that, 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 the, that the harvest is going to be sweet and wonderful for the redeemed. And so Christ judges the wicked. And then He raises the, 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 the bodies of those who have trusted in Him for forgiveness of sins. And He gathers the harvest. And Christ now brings the harvest to His Father. And he says, Father, your kingdom, your harvest. And then the Father says, no, my son, this is yours. And the Father places the harvest under the feet of his Son. And we then, for all of eternity, are under the rule and the reign of Christ, which is good and loving and pure, the eternal springtime. The harvest. The the, the budding on the trees. The tree of life. The flowers that are forever opening to the glory of God. The song that we will forever sing, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and power and might. He's worthy forever and ever and ever. Why is He worthy? Because He is our resurrected Savior. Because we have no works of righteousness that I have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. We have looked at Christ. And we have seen the forgiveness of our sins. And we have experienced the resurrection as it has changed our life. And the resurrection... Changes everything. God is saying here that life does indeed matter. Amen. Without the resurrection, everything would be meaningless. Just, just briefly, verse 29, He points to this superstitious practice of baptizing the dead. And He's pointing out the inconsistencies. Like, look, you're baptizing the dead, but you don't even believe that the dead are raised. You're, it's foolish. It, it, it's meaningless. He goes on, He says in verse 30, says, I face danger every day day and if Christ is not raised from the dead why am I not just chilling on the beach somewhere why am I risking my life in Ephesus but no he says I I die every day to myself because now that Christ is raised from the dead self-sacrifice isn't what it used to be we can now freely die to ourselves because we have the great hope of the resurrection we can be taken advantage of And not worry about retaliation. Because this world is not all that we have. Depression and despair is not the end. Because this life is not all that you have. Yet I think of those who have denied Christ. As they have denied Christ, they have denied God. And as they have denied God, they have denied their only hope in this life and in the next. This might make sense as to why you are living your life in the way that you are. Moving from one mind-numbing activity to another. Unable to sit with yourself. Unable to feel the feelings that bubble up within. The sadness. And so the music never stops playing. The TV is always on. Drinks are always being ordered just so we can move through with a series of events to look forward to to get us to the end of our meaningless life. Friends, my heart breaks for those who have no hope. But no, life does matter. All of life matters the resurrection changes everything. And the resurrection changes you. The resurrection changed Paul the Apostle who wrote this letter. He says, back in verse 10, he says, remembering back, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a murderer. He was a self-righteous, arrogant, proud, godless individual. And then he had an encounter. With the risen Christ, and it changed everything. It changed his life. And Paul says, even though this is what I was, by God's grace, now I am what I am. I was lost. I lived for the next event. I lived merely to be excited. I lived for the next meal, or the next paycheck, or I lived for the next weekend. My life was a series of one thing after another just to kill time, to make me feel good so I could get through this life without any real hope. I denied Christ, I persecuted our Lord, but I have been visited by the resurrected Savior. His glory has blinded my eyes. He forgave me of my sins through His blood shed on the cross. And He broke through the power of death, proving that I have broken through the power of sin, and that have the hope that one day I will be freed from the presence of sin, and too will be resurrected with an incorruptible body, with Jesus forever and ever. I am part of the harvest. Eternal life. Freed. By God's grace, I am what I am. Amen. Father, we ask that You let us experience the risen Christ this morning. As we have been Uh, intellectually reminded of the historicity of the resurrection. We've been reminded of the need for Christ's resurrection and also the hope that we have in the resurrection. God, let there not be a soul that walks out of this place with no hope. Encourage us. Show us the face of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.